You are listening to National Security Law Today. To our listeners everywhere, we hope this finds you in good health, physical and mental. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will remain here for you throughout the duration of this crisis with legal updates and podcasts. Welcome to National Security Law Today, now and throughout this new normal. Of course, we are talking about the coronavirus response, and we know you have some big questions. The situation remains fluid, fears loom, there's a lot of uncertainty, but we'd love to get some facts to you and the law along with it so you can help see through and manage it all. All right, question. In the middle of a pandemic, can the government seize hand sanitizer from a janitorial company? or just purchase the hand sanitizer from the manufacturer of that hand sanitizer before everyone else, including that poor janitorial company. If the president could do that, under what authority? Can the president force big automotive companies to manufacture respirators? What exactly are the limits of the president's authorities? Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security where our guest is a longtime member of the committee and friend of the pod, Professor Bill Banks of Syracuse University. Today, we're going to discuss various emergency authorities that might be invoked by the president during this time. All right, and yes, we're going to hyperlink the law and relevant articles in the notes so you can educate yourself from home. Uh, Welcome, Professor Banks. Thanks for joining us, Bill. It's good to be with both of you. Thanks for having me. So let's get into first principles. In a public health emergency like the one we're in now, how much of the responsibility is federal and how much is state and local? It's really important for everyone to appreciate that public health emergencies are different, different from those that uh, we've experienced more recently, different from those that President Trump has declared during his presidency, such as the supposed emergency on the southern border and the need to construct a wall. Public health has traditionally been uh, relegated to the lowest common levels of government in our society. In other words, public health is predominantly a state and local matter, and not a federal matter. There are federal authorities that pertain here. There are quite a few, and we should talk about several of them. But the default position, if you will, is that public health emergencies are managed and controlled by state and local officials. There are some recent examples where the federal government has also exercised some authority in public health emergencies. Many folks who are listening will remember the SARS epidemic and the experience the United States had with Ebola a few years ago. There's almost no judicial authority on the extent to which the federal government has authority in this area. There is a little, and we'll talk about it. And Congress also lacks the power to reach inside the states to control how states respond to public emergencies. This is because of the limits established by the Supreme Court more than 20 years ago on Congress's exercise of its Commerce Clause power. Uh, the, the, the verb that was coined during that period was uh, that the Congress can't commandeer the states. So there's no federal police power for Congress or the executive to direct the states to respond to a public health emergency in any particular way inside the states. 
there's a final question, I suppose, in the overview about whether the military might be involved in some ways in public health responses. And the answer is yes, to some degree, normally subject to state governance and control, but in some instances, perhaps even a federalized military response. So you're explaining basically why you know, I am in Virginia and I have different, there are different grocery stores and restaurants uh, that are open as opposed to um, Elisa who's in DC and you're in Arizona. That's right. Each governor through, the, through their public health officials, either the governor, him or herself, or a public health uh, director in the state can establish those rules for the state. It involves closures, as you suggest, like grocery stores and pharmacies, what constitutes an essential business, what does it mean to be told to stay at home, will the states choose to enforce those restrictions with their own police forces. So far we haven't seen much in the way of a problem with state enforcement of those measures, but in most cases the measures are voluntary. Totally. So in D.C., I've read the, the um, executive order in D.C., and it's basically suggestions, whereas in Maryland, the um, executive orders subject you to a penalty of up to $5,000 and a year in jail. Certainly. So it, it varies widely. It does very widely, and those are the state's prerogatives to make those choices. All right, Bill, but uh, from what source or sources does the president's power in a public health emergency derive uh, and what emergency authorities have been invoked so far by the president? And what is the scope of those authorities? Recognizing for our listeners that this is frankly changing constantly. That's right. So many of your listeners will, will know or will recall perhaps from an earlier podcast talking about the president's emergency powers that the president's emergency powers to the extent they exist do not come from the Constitution of the United States. Our Constitution mentions emergencies only in four different instances, and none of them grant powers to the president. And in fact, they're not related to public health, and we shouldn't even bother discussing them today. Nor is there any inherent authority in Article II for the president to manage public health crises. Nonetheless, Congress has really, from the beginning, delegated considerable authority to the executive branch that may be exercised during times of public health authority. Those come in the form of statutes by and large, and those statutes, uh, some of them are quite pertinent to the emergency that is before us now. One of the things that's, that your listeners who, like me, are riveted to the, uh, to the news these last few months, one of the things that happened early on is, is that Secretary Azar from the uh, Department of Health and Human Services declared a public health emergency on January the 31st, more six, seven weeks ago now, that where his declaration of a public health emergency could have unleashed some federal authorities, for example, to ramp up the availability of tests, uh, to order the production of masks and respirators, uh, but uh, nothing was done throughout the month of February at the federal level. Uh, and nothing meaning almost literally nothing. And uh, uh, President Trump's emergency declaration followed, but only earlier in March. And still the public health authorities have not been exercised to any considerable degree. We can talk about some of the specific authorities if you think that would be useful. 
Um, yeah, why don't we do this? And for our listeners, um, if you're look, listening to this right now and you want to turn to the internet, take a look at 42 USC section 201 at SEC. Um, and we will also, we'll hyperlink things like the Defense Production Act. So um, yeah, let's talk about some of those specific authorities, if you would. Sure. It might be best to begin with the Stafford Act. Many of your listeners would have heard of the Stafford Act because it's been invoked uh, by presidents for, for a long time, for longer than any of us have been alive, even me, and I'm pretty old, it's been invoked usually in response to natural disasters, storms, hurricanes, bad tornadoes, weather systems. And, and Stafford basically allows the president, once he declares either a major disaster, in quotes, or a national emergency, in quotes, he can essentially throw money at the problem. He, he usually then funnels money to the states who in turn actually carry out the effective response, sometime with the assistance of federal administrative agencies like FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or other agencies inside the Department of Homeland Security. So here the Stafford Act has been invoked uh, and there is some money, I'm sure, going to support the states but uh, it has not been uh, given a lot of attention and there's no specific uh, federal initiative that's been uh, directed to the uh, COVID-19 with, with respect to the Stafford Act. The second statute that is less widely known, but perhaps even more important is the Public Health Services Act. For those of you like Yvette who are uh, checking your sites at home, 42 USC section 201 at SEC. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, Secretary of Czar at HHS declared a public health emergency at the end of January. He could have invoked these authorities to ramp up testing, to uh, generate the production of more uh, masks and respirators for those in, in need of serious medical treatment. But uh, the president's follow-on emergency declaration under the National Emergencies Act didn't follow for six weeks into early March. Uh, the, the, the measures that have been taken so far have uh, contributed all next to nothing to the federal effort against the, uh, the pandemic. And if those authorities are eventually exercised, they could include very intrusive federal measures like interstate quarantine. That's perhaps one of the most controversial things that could be done. Bill, could you say what you mean by that? Given um, all the conversation about quarantine, you might want to amplify that concept. Yes, yes. You know, quarantine is a classic public health response to a serious disease or outbreak uh, of any kind. And quarantine authority is like public health generally thought to be uh, reserved to the states and local governments. And indeed, states may exercise quarantine authority and some states have essentially done that so far in response to COVID-19. However, few, fewer people recognize that the Congress has delegated to the, uh, through the Public Health Services Act, uh, delegated to the Department of Health and Human Services, the authority to exercise a, an interstate or border quarantine, either a quarantine from exiting or entering the United States from outside or a quarantine as people would uh, attempt to travel from state A to state B. Uh, those, those authorities are rarely exercised, but there are regulations that are prepared in the Code of Federal Regulations that allow for COVID-19 to simply be added to a list of those uh, 
specific diseases for which apprehension and detention of persons crossing state lines could be put into place. Wow, that's dramatic. It's a dramatic authority. Time will tell whether that authority uh, would be exercised by the United States. So far, Secretary Azar has been pretty quiet since his January 31 uh, declaration of a public health emergency. But reaching back in time, there's also the Defense Production Act, which I think yeah. there was, you know, anybody who's been to law school has probably read some of those cases. Um, could you give us a little history on that? I think we always need to see ourselves in, see ourselves in context. Right. The Defense Production Act is a Korean War era law, uh, which has occasionally been dusted off for the, for the president to order the private sector to essentially allow the Defense Department normally to get at the front of a supply line to require materials that are necessary for defense. Obviously, in the Korean War, it was materials to, to continue to fight the Korean War. Now it would be the, the public health materials that are most urgently in need, tests, masks, respirators, other PPE equipment that's needed in the emergency rooms and other facilities in, the, in at least so far in the hardest hit states. It essentially lets the United States cut in line, if you will, to uh, pr procure goods uh, from manufacturers. Sometimes manufacturers may have to retrofit or alter their production or their factories to make what it is that the United States needs. But the Defense Production Act allows the president to order that to get done. In this instance, remarkably, President Trump triggered the authorities of the Defense Production Act about a week ago. He signed an executive order saying that the Defense Production Act authorities are now available to me, but he has not yet exercised them. And that's quite controversial, right? That he triggered those authorities but has not exercised them. Well, there's some controversy, if I may, Bill. Today, the FEMA director in a public statement, or it could have been yesterday, indicated that they have exercised, um, they have gotten in line in front to get certain things. I believe in this instance, it was some sort of wipes and hand sanitizer. Um, and that did appear to contradict um, the White House's statement um, so I'm not, I'm not ascribing blame to anyone for that confusion, but there was a statement that it had been exercised just in point of, of clarification. Yeah, that's good to know. And I, you know, one of the points about the act is that it could have been, the authorities there could have been exercised as soon as Secretary Azar declared the public health emergency about seven weeks ago, and they were not. And the time that, uh, time was lost in generating the production of these critically important uh, public health uh, goods that are needed at the front lines in New York, California, Washington State, and elsewhere. Right, because as we sit here, there is a critical shortage of masks. Um, I've seen on social media people soliciting people to, to um, sew cloth masks, for example, because there's such a dire shortage. Um, yes. So it, it, it is controversial that it, even if it's happened recently, um, it, it didn't happen um, soon enough. So let's, uh, let's move on, Bill. There's one other act, which is the Insurrection Act. Um, does this involve sort of nuclear options and, and what would this entail? The Insurrection Act has uh, actually been around since the, soon after the founding of the Republic. I think 1792 wasn't always known as the Insurrection Act, but in 
one iteration or another. It's been part of the arsenal of federal authority from the very beginning. And the idea is, uh, for example, with uh, President Washington and the Whiskey Rebellion in 1792, uh, the, the whiskey makers weren't paying tax and, and they uh, rebuffed efforts of the state authorities in Pennsylvania to uh, collect tax. They, they chewed away and shot away at the uh, federal tax collectors that would come around to the distilleries. So President Washington sent in the military. And after confrontation, the distilleries backed down, the tax was collected and, uh, and we moved on. Some version of that authority, in other words, has been around uh, for as long a, a, as the nation. In its modern form, it's in Title 50, sections 1541 and following, the, it's possible for uh, the president to order a militarized response in various circumstances. Essentially, those circumstances involve an insurrection, which is simply a, a dictionary term, a general revolt against government authority, uh, domestic violence in any state where the state or, and the traditional law enforcement authorities are unable to manage things, or in the failure to be able to enforce uh, federal laws. So uh, historic examples include uh, school desegregation in Arkansas, uh, and the failure of Gov Governor Faubus to allow the, the local officials in Little Rock to desegregate the public schools in the wake of Brown versus the Board of Education in the 1950s. President Eisenhower sent in the military because Governor Faubus ordered the local National Guard to stand and block the African-American children from entering the school there. Uh, Eisenhower uh, went forward with the federal military operation and the kids uh, were admitted to the school. The last time that the Insurrection Act has been invoked by a US president was by George H.W. Bush in response to the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles. California authorities, they, he, they asked for the, the federal assistance from President Bush. He invoked the Insurrection Act. He sent federalized National Guard and regular military to come to support California State National Guard who were already on that assignment. So it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful uh, tool that is only seldom used. And that's, of course, because to the extent military resources uh, uh, can be brought to bear to assist in a public health emergency, they're at the disposal of the governors. They're our friends and neighbors. The National Guard is in every community. And as we know from following the developments under the coronavirus, uh, most states now have called out National Guard forces to help with, uh, with medical surge, to help with infrastructure, to deliver supplies. And, in, and if things become worse in some of those states like New York or California or Washington, National Guard could even be called out to enforce the laws. So can we talk a little bit about that eventuality? Can you tell us how the authorities that you talked about uh, just now interact with uh, Posse Comitatus? Yeah, sure. Many of, your, many of our listeners will know that there's a long tradition in the United States that has us keeping law enforcement in civilian hands, preventing the military from being involved in, in law enforcement. We just like it that way. That's our culture. Those are our norms. 
those norms are reduced to law to some degree. There's a law that's got a fancy name called the Posse Comitatus Act, which was enacted in 1878 in the wake of a dispute over the 1876 presidential election where it was alleged that the, uh, the Republican Party, uh, party of uh, deceased President Lincoln was attempting to hold on to the presidency in part by intimidating in voters in the South by having regular military posted at the uh, polling places. Uh, a deal was struck in the 1876 election, but part of the deal was to agree to a statute that was then enacted by Congress a little more than a year later called Posse Comitatus, which essentially says that the military should not be involved in law enforcement, civilian law enforcement, unless there's another statute that says that it may, or unless the Constitution provides for that authority. Earlier on, of course, the statute, it's a criminal statute. It's capable of being punished by fine or imprisonment. There's never been a prosecution for violation of the act, and the act has been broadened over the years. Of course, initially it applied only to the army. Now it applies to all the service branches, either through a regulation or, or practice in their field manuals. It's now part of our culture. Military are trained not to be involved in law enforcement. Yet there are some statutory exceptions, posse comitatus. One of them is the one we just finished discussing, the Insurrection Act. That's a clear exception. So what posse comitatus does as a legal matter is to simply establish a presumption so that the, the rule is, is a equivalent of a, of a rebuttable presumption that the military won't be involved. Uh, there are some other exceptions to posse comitatus, but now when the military are trained, as, as uh, many of us know, uh, they're trained to say that, uh, that they don't engage in law enforcement. Maybe uh, the police will take care of it, and if not the police, state National Guard, state deployed National Guard are not subject to posse comitatus because they're not federal. They may be, as, as you all know, they're either deployed by the governor straight up on the governor's authority and subject to the governor's command, or as in the case now in coronavirus in three of the states, New York, California, and Washington, they may be in what is referred to as Title 32 status, where their costs are paid for by federal taxpayers, but they remain under the governor's control, still subject to state law, and then may engage in law enforcement, even though they're being paid out of the United States Treasury. That was a mouthful. That was a lot, but it was a great lot. That was wonderful to hear and, and very informative. Um, and I'm hoping that, um, you know, we do what's needed and certainly uh, respect all those cultural norms and boundaries in the face of this thing. But what challenges on that score, what challenges should we expect to any of these measures? Yeah, the, you know, it, Things could get worse uh, on the ground in response to the coronavirus. Uh, the trends are not uh, looking very good right now. Uh, you know, so it, it, say that in a given state that uh, citizens chose to object to uh, uh, the stay-at-home rules if they were mandatory, or uh, the lack of opportunity to travel across state lines, say from California to uh, Nevada, or California to Oregon, 
there are various arguments that could be made uh, uh, by a person who wished to challenge the authority of the federal government to intervene in a situation like this. Uh, they could begin, of course, by arguing that the statutes that we've just reviewed, the Insurrection Act, the Public Health Services Act, and the regulations that implement it, do not authorize the actions that the federal government took. I think those arguments are not very promising, but if I were representing someone in such a situation, that's certainly where you'd begin, that the statutes don't authorize the specific activity. Persons, of course, would uh, argue that they weren't given any notice or opportunity to be heard before uh, steps like this were taken by the government, and that's a species of procedural due process, individuals protected by the Fifth Amendment against the United States. And I think those arguments could be plausible, depending on the circumstances, that you're entitled to have your situation presented before some kind of a neutral decision maker. Typically, when the states have undertaken measures like this, courts have deferred readily to state authority and suggested that it's part of the state police power to take measures that are necessary to protect the public health and safety. And rarely has an individual won a judgment against the state in a circumstance like this. There's very little law when it comes to the federal government imposing similar kind of measures. In addition to procedures, individuals could argue about their substantive due process interests, whether there are less restrictive alternatives available that could have allowed the government to say, let Joe Schmo travel from California to Nevada uh, without being at risk of transmitting the, the virus. I don't know how that would work. Is he wearing PPE or a mask? Uh, it, it's, it's hard to think that an individual could travel risk-free. Individuals will make, if individuals are detained, for example, because they're trying to uh, uh, break out of some kind of a confinement situation in their neighborhood or in their home, there are Fourth Amendment issues. Uh, you know, can you be subject to uh, uh, checkpoints for uh, have, a, have a thermometer stuck in your mouth to take your temperature before you uh, go into a grocery store? Uh, and, and as students of the Fourth Amendment will recall, when, when something other than ordinary law enforcement is going on, there's something called the special needs exception to the warrant clause, the 14th, Fourth Amendment, that allows the government to undertake warrantless uh, measures for search and seizure that would not be permitted in traditional law enforcement way. So those decisions are uh, yet to be made. There's been some talk about surveillance to track who, uh, who has been tested positive, where they've been and where they're going. I think the state of Israel might be experimenting with some surveillance of the movements of their population in light of the, of the virus. China has announced that they've been doing this too today, Bill. China, that's yeah. right. So, you know, very different China and Israel than the United States. I don't know that we've got that geared up here, but that would raise a whole different set of Fourth Amendment issues that would have to be examined and analyzed. Uh, two other things briefly. There is something that has been recognized in the federal courts for a long time called the constitutional right to travel. So if, if the Fed said you may not go from California to Nevada and, and our, our client wants to travel, he's an addicted gambler, let's say, needs to get to Vegas, uh, you know, there are some decisions that date from the 1990s that recognize 
somewhere in the Bill of Rights, perhaps in the Fifth Amendment, perhaps in the Ninth Amendment, and an unwritten constitutional right to travel. Pardon me, Bill, that's an interstate, though. That's not international travel, just to distinguish the two. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Finally, you know, those, those who businesses who've been losing uh, uh, hand over fist uh, in the wake of the closures ordered uh, by states and cities, uh, they might have Fifth Amendment takings arguments to make in, in, servant, uh, in furtherance of their property rights. It, to the extent that it's simply a regulation for public health, uh, safety, and welfare, it's unlikely that there would be any Fifth Amendment merit or Fourteenth Amendment if uh, the claim was against the state. But in any case, if property is literally taken by the federal government uh, for furtherance of public health objectives, like taking a factory, for example, the factory owner would be entitled to just compensation, which would then extinguish the, uh, the claims. That's a wow. lot again. It's a lot, but um, you know, it's good to discuss some of these issues that we hope remain hypothetical. But um, you know, we're in that situation where these things are moving forward quickly. Um, so let's just briefly hit on the last sort of. We were talking a bit about international travel, um, and there not being a recognized constitutional right to do that. But how does a public health emergency differ? from uh, another issue that the president raised, um, which has been the so-called crisis at the southern border. Some people believe there was one, some people do not. What are your thoughts on that? The, the irony, I think, of the Trump administration's response to the public health crisis was that they acted uh, very weakly and they did it very late. In the so-called crisis at the southern border, the president acted very quickly and very aggressively. Arguably, they did too much too quickly with respect to the border. There's still litigation, of course, about the construction of the so-called border wall. And in the, in the case of the public health emergency, they had good intelligence from the intelligence community early in January that there was going to be a pandemic that would surely reach the United States. They either ignored or discounted that, that intelligence warning. And then at the end of January, even Secretary Azar was cognizant and, and declared a public health emergency, yet the feds took virtually no forthright action to ameliorate the crisis until the last uh, week or so. Wow. So it this is so i want to ask another um probably controversial question um of course we're approaching election season and there are some you know legitimate concerns about whether or not the president can use uh the coronavirus emergency to delay elections um we've seen that in the primaries uh is there authority for the president to do that and what are the limits of that authority yeah, it is a good question, and it is increasingly being asked. I think, you know, in, let's start with the Constitution. The Constitution says relatively little about elections and says next to nothing about a presidential election. But the 20th Amendment, which is not an amendment that I imagine any of us have uh, committed to memory, does say that the, that the presidential term is over on January 20th. 
unless he is reelected. So sometime November the 3rd or between November the 3rd and January 20th, there needs to be an election which President Trump wins or he has to pack his bags and be out of the White House on January the 20th. So I just, I, I just want to ask um, before you go on to your next point, I mean, there are clear, you know, what people thought were very clear restrictions on presidential authority with the emoluments clause, for example, but we've discovered that there are limits as far as how you can enforce the constitution, especially when no one has standing. Would we be able to actually bring a, bring a lawsuit? Is there anybody who could sue to say there's a violation of the January 20th requirement in the constitution? Well, I would think a voter would have standing in that instance, uh, Yvette, because the voter may have cast her ballot for the president's opponent. And if the, the president Trump is unwilling to step aside by the constitutionally required January 20th date, then the, the voter's been injured and I think has uh, standing to sue. How that question will be handled on the merits, is, you know, it's an unprecedented question. We have no well, idea. Yeah. And it assumes things. that it assumes that we've also had an election. What if there is a there isn't an election, so there is no voter to cast a vote? Yeah, we're in uh, we're in a never never land here. There's no script for those circumstances. You know, one of the things that I think uh, we should pay attention to well, two. One is that the states, of course, have a lot to say about the time, place, and manner of elections. So there's a lot of talk now about anticipating problems getting to the polls because of the virus. There's other discussion in the last four years, as we all know, about problems with the polls because of interference in the election from outsiders, including the Russians. So there's a, a good deal of movement now toward a, a vote by mail uh, campaign. And there are bills, of course, in the Congress that would uh, facilitate voting by mail in this upcoming election. It could certainly be done. But, you know, think if that doesn't happen or if it doesn't happen in a widespread uh, way between now and November the 3rd, uh, and, the, and assuming that the coronavirus uh, crisis is still with us through into the fall, the president could make it difficult for individuals to vote simply by uh, rigorously applying social distancing norms, for example. Uh, I can imagine those kind of informal pressures being bought, brought to bear on voting in the November election, even if it's not interfered with otherwise, that could compromise voter turnout. Okay, well, that's highly dystopic and alarming, and I think it would be uh, to anyone, regardless of party affiliation, to think that we could find ourselves in that situation with such a, a precious right that we enjoy in this country. But Bill, what should people be on the lookout for in terms of words used by the president and his staff in the coming weeks and maybe months? And uh, wouldn't it be great if there was a place where people could go to identify precisely which authorities the president has invoked um, I would love to believe that it could be located on whitehouse.gov. Make sure you click on that one if you're looking, not whitehouse.com. You will have an unpleasant surprise or pleasant, depending on your proclivities. But what are your thoughts? Where is that source of information? Well, I think, you know, one of the bright spots in, in the federal response to the crisis so far has been the presence of, uh, of Dr. Fauci. 
and at least at times allowing the public health experts to be the spokesperson for the federal government in the wake of the crisis. I think in the last couple of days, maybe Fauci has been less visible because he's, <laughs> he's a tell it like it is sort of a, a scientist. And he told it like it is several times in direct contradiction to the president's uh, remarks or the president's tweets. But if, if the White House has the good judgment going forward to let the people who know what's going on speak for the United States, Fauci or, or someone else, then I think it's a hopeful sign. The objective going forward for all of us, of course, is to flatten the curve, to tamp down the virus so that the number of cases, the number of infections uh, goes down and the, the rate of increase uh, decreases uh, dramatically or at least gradually down to a point where our public health system, doctors, nurses, other staff, available equipment, beds in the ERs, beds elsewhere that can be constructed are able to keep up with the cases. There's a real danger in a place like New York City that they're just going to be stripped bare as was Rome, Italy and other places in Italy and be unable to care for the people who are critically ill. That's a tremendously tragic outcome that I hope we can avoid. So we need to be looking for progress on the public health front. This is really a public health problem and there are public health measures that are in place that can respond to it. We got a late start, but we are catching up. Yes, and I, I do occasionally see uh, Dr. Fauci in the neighborhood and he looks quite hale as of this recording um, and is quite the uh, runner at his age, which is really remarkable and I'm glad he is. That's great to know, I didn't realize that. All right, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really terrific experience to have you here. Um, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna try to keep you informed and up to date as best we can with law, on the topic, um, articles available for you at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. So you can find links to the Black Letter Law as always and Bill's fantastic articles on um, relevant topics uh, at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in our show notes. We'll be back next week with more content for you. We ask you to follow the CDC guidance to limit the spread of this disease. We are all podcasting from our homes and we hope you're listening at home as well. Absolutely. And I want to say to all of our listeners that the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed, to give you context on these fast moving legal developments so you don't have to search for it beyond your laptop screen. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Find and follow us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC. Please feel free to give us your thoughts, especially in this time. We do welcome your feedback. To all of our listeners, please be well. Practice social distancing. Don't hoard toilet paper. It is not the apocalypse. Communicate with your elderly neighbors and relatives and make sure they're getting what they need. We are all in this together apart. We'll see you next time on National Security Law Today. All right. I just want to say that the attorneys hosting this podcast, all of us, are here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Did you think we'd let you get away without a disclaimer? Never. <laughs> Never.
Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.